this week on the Backtable Podcast. If we can take a patient that may have a clinically significant cancer and treat that lesion and make it a clinically insignificant cancer where we're just following them like we do with our active surveillance patients and we bring them down into a low-risk category, I think that's really one of the sort of benefits of focal ablation is, is we're, we're reducing the risk. And if we have a therapy that has high efficacy and a therapy that has low treatment side effects, and then thirdly, a treatment that allows you to have additional treatments, doesn't take anything off the table, that's really the ideal focal ablation treatment. and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source of all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. The NanoKnife system from Angiodynamics is an ablation technology that harnesses the power of irreversible electroporation to destroy diseased tissue without the need for thermal energy. With the NanoKnife system, you can sculpt and control the ablation zone through multiple electro configuration effectively destroying targeted tissue with precise treatment margins. The unique non-thermal mechanism of action allows you to spare vital structures within the ablation zone and enables treatment to be performed in all segments of an organ. Reimagine your treatment at nanolife.com and learn about the ongoing preserve study for intermediate risk prostate cancer patients. The nanonife system with six outputs is indicated for surgical ablation of soft tissue. Visit angiodynamics.com for important risk information. This is Jose Ocha Silva, uh, so your host this week, and I'm very excited about this episode. We have two guests today. We have Dr. Amit Patel and Dr. Ranko Miosinovic. Both are part of urologists in uh, Dooley Health and Care Chicago area. Dr. Patel did residency at Cleveland Clinic and then a fellowship in urology oncology at the University of Chicago. And Dr. Miosinovic did a residency in Toledo and then a fellowship in urology oncology from Cleveland Clinic. So Amit and Ranko, welcome to Backtable. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. Today we're going to talk about prostate cancer and using focal therapies to treat it. So let me ask you a couple of questions regarding the, the logistics on, on, on how you see patients. Are you guys mainly receiving patients for treatments, directly to treatments, or, or are you also in the process of diagnosing, uh, doing PSA, all that? How's your practice like? Thank you, Jose. So we, we are actually doing both. We are in a, a large multi-specialty practice in the Chicagoland area. Uh, we have a big primary care base, and we have a group of 17 urologists in our practice, and majority are general urologists, so they see everything. And then a few of us are oncology trained. And so we, we see our own patients with, for elevated PSA and we diagnose prostate cancer as well as we get referrals from our partners as well as from other physicians in the community. Okay. And, and when you see those patients with elevated PSA, uh, what's the process of, of how, how do you do biopsy? Are you doing only MRI? I mean, are you always doing an MRI prior to a biopsy? Depends on the case. How do you guys are, are, are approaching these patients? So probably around 2013, when the data on MRI first started coming out, we started to do MRIs with our, working with our radiologists. So as early as 2013, we were doing MRIs prior to biopsies. And now essentially every patient who comes in with an elevated PSA, that's 
going to go down the road for a biopsy is going to get an MRI before the biopsy. So that's our practice. So it will be on, unless the patient for some reason cannot go on the MRI, then you will do just a standard biopsy. But other than that, do the MRI. And then when you go and do the biopsy, are you doing perineal, transrectal? Yes. So we are transitioning from a transrectal approach to transperineal approach. Dr. Patel and myself are uh, mostly doing transperineals at this point. We do have a lot of our partners who are still doing transrectal approach. And it's a slow transition, if you will. But in our area here, I can tell you as well that a lot of the academic places have a transition to transperineal. Uh, so it seems to be happening quite a bit in our uh, area of the country. I would say more than 50%, I think, urologists here are probably doing the transperineal approach. Are you guys doing in the OR, uh, ambulatory setting, the office? How are you doing those biopsies? We're doing all of our biopsies in the office setting under local anesthesia. We have acquired the Pronox system not too long ago for other reasons, mostly for the Eurolift procedures that most of our partners do. But every once in a while, we'll actually use it for our transperineal patients. However, to be honest with you, they tolerate local anesthetic pretty well. And it's not often that we employ this for, uh, you know, our biopsies. Yeah, good to know, because right now I'm doing them transperineal and it's, I guess, a matter of logistics in terms of the OR time. I do it in the OR. We're getting the Pronox in the office so I can speed it up. But right now, the for some reason, anesthesia, if the patient is supine, they want to put it on LMA. They're not comfortable just doing the the, the, the pro, propofol, just a risk of predation. So we're working on that. But definitely trying to do the, the perineal, uh, less, less infections. Uh, is, is there any other benefits of doing the transperineal approach? You know, I think that uh, since you're asking me these questions, I speak for Dr. Patel and myself since we're champions of this in our group. You know, we, we do feel that likely you may have a better biopsy of the anterior zones in, in prostates where you may, you know, need to push harder to get to the anterior zone transrectally. I think that you may probably have a better access with the transperineal approach. And of course, the infection thing is, uh, with no doubt, a huge benefit. Perfect. So let's say that the patient uh, comes back to your office, positive biopsy for prostate cancer. What's the next step? How, how does that discussion go? Do you go into possible treatments? Do you only do the staging? How, how's that process? So in our practice, uh, we have radiation oncologists that we're partners with, and so any patient that sees Ronco or myself for prostate cancer, newly diagnosed prostate cancer, they come through our multidisciplinary prostate cancer clinic. So they're seeing uh, myself and, you know, with them, I go through the pathology, the staging imaging. If we, you know, MRI usually is the first staging imaging that we're doing even before the diagnosis. So we go through that, the pathology, the prognosis, and then I talk to them fully about all their treatment options, including radiation, surgery, and then alternative options, alternative treatment options as well. And then they meet our nurse navigator, and then they actually subsequently go to see uh, the radiation oncologist uh, right after. So we have interconnected offices, and so they see the radiation oncologist in their office to discuss radiation as the two main options for treatment. So even in that first visit or post-op visit, they already talked to the radiation oncologist? So in that first post-biopsy visit where, they're, where they have newly diagnosed prostate cancer. Yeah, it, it's something that, you know, we picked up from just our training at Cleveland Clinic. They're seeing us for 
all of the diagnosis information and treatment options, and then immediately they are seeing radiation oncology. As most patients have localized disease, you know, about 80% are, are presenting with localized disease, they're going to see the radiation oncologist with us. So it's a multi-specialty, multidisciplinary approach, essentially to give that patient all of the information about their treatment options. And are you guys seeing a lot of uh, active surveillance? For example, me, when I started, I started doing MRI biopsies two years ago, and I haven't seen that much patients now that I'm doing MRI guided for active surveillance. Is that something that you guys are seeing? And so, yeah, so I think you kind of mentioned it. We, with the MRI, we're diagnosing probably less insignificant cancers. So we're not, because we're not biopsying if there's not a significant lesion. And so we're seeing less of the Gleason 6s. Those patients who have persistently elevated PSA, negative MRIs, and some risk factor that undergo a biopsy anyway, if they have Gleason 6, yes, we are a majority of our localized Gleason 6 low-risk prostate cancers. I would say about 75% of them reviewing our data are undergoing active surveillance. And Ranko, so uh, do you have any special like algorithm for, for a patient uh, when you see them in terms of, let's say, you do the full staging and then do you gear them towards a specific uh, procedure or, or, or how, how does it go? Do, do you leave it up to the patient? Uh, how's that algorithm in terms of favoring one versus the other? Yeah, that's a good question. So with our uh, multidisciplinary approach, uh, really, we try to present patient with all options, you know, surgery, active surveillance, watchful waiting, radiation, brachytherapy, and uh, really, you know, let patient know about the pros, cons, and risks of all of those approaches. And we try to have patients decide what fits their lifestyle, quality of life, and what they're willing to take as risk factors. Both Dr. Patel and myself, uh, you know, we're surgeons, obviously, but we really try to have a non-biased approach to the way we take care of these uh, men. And now in the most recent times, you know, we are adding this other arm of uh, focal prostate ablation as well. The algorithm is we talk about everything openly and try not to be biased towards one or the other. How about you, Amit? Same thing? Yeah. So, you know, we, we practice very similarly. We do like to offer and educate the patients on all their treatment options. And, and that's one of the great things and probably one of the curses of prostate cancer is that patients have a lot of options for treatment and management. And I think sometimes for patients, it can be very confusing which route they want to take. They're worried about going down the wrong route or making a mistake and they can't come back. You know, for example, one of the things we talk about is if they have radiation, you know, there's a potential that surgery is then more difficult or can't be done after radiation therapy. So we do like to educate all of our patients on the pros and cons of each therapy, including how nothing is 100% cure rate, you know, surgery or radiation. And, and I think that's, for us, that's been helpful. It's really been helpful for our patients to get educated in that manner. So let's talk about ablation, okay? I'm very naive to it, so I'm going to ask maybe a dumb questions. So when we talk about ablation, I mean, what does it mean? We're just talking about focal therapy. I mean, for example, a patient that has cancer throughout the prostate, is that a, a candidate for ablation or, or are we just talking about focal ablation? So, so Ranko, what, 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 what will you say? I mean, so somebody like me, say you have a resident, how, how do you explain ablation? 
You know, that's a very good question. And I will uh, step back just to sort of uh, paint the background on this. I think that we have these wide categories of cancer. You have low-risk disease. Then we have intermediate risk disease, which is classified into favorable and unfavorable disease. And then we have high-risk prostate cancer. And so I think high-risk, I don't think there's much question in that needs aggressive treatment. Low-risk, I think there's been a lot of studies showing that active surveillance has been safe and uh, it has become almost a standard of care uh, in our practice that most men get will go on with active surveillance. But I think the most interesting category now becomes the intermediate risk, especially those patients who have three plus four or group two, and then small a volume of group three patients, you know, three, uh, four plus three disease. And uh, a lot of the times, you know, the question comes up to me is, uh, you know, they have two or three cores and the patient will say, doc, but can't you just take that part out and leave everything else alone in order to prevent these horrific side effects, potentially sexual dysfunction and uh, avoiding dysfunction that is. And so when you scratch your head, you say to yourself, "Ha, huh, that's a very interesting point. You know, those are, that's probably the population that would potentially benefit from a focal ablation, which is what Dr. Patel and I are interested in as a primary therapy. Ablation, of course, can mean ablation of the entire gland. And Dr. Patel can touch upon this later on. He does a lot of salvage cryoablation therapy in the setting of previous radiation. He can elaborate on that. But I think in terms of primary therapy for now, we are interested in offering you know, focal ablation, which is, I think, much more attractive to patients instead of ablating the whole gland. And uh, it has pros and cons. As you mentioned, prostate cancer is a uh, multi-field disease. So one can say, hey, what about the other side? Are you at risk of developing cancer there? And why don't you just take it all out at once? And I think that's a very good question. But I think that Dr. Patel and I talked about this recently as well. And, and we're trying to get those patients from potentially intermediate risk downgraded back to low risk again. If they do have additional Gleason 6 somewhere else, we're essentially going back to active surveillance on them. And that's the approach that we were taking. Just last comment that I'm going to make, ablation, you know, there there's many different forms and therapies that are being done right now. I think we counted last night as we were looking at this up to seven different types of formats and some of thermal, non-thermal, you know, some use cryo, some use radio frequency, some use photodynamic therapy, brachytherapy, as you know. So the times we're living in right now are very exciting because all of these are on the table and people are kind of doing studies within each area and trying to figure out what's going to be the most effective and yet the least destructive, if you will, option for these patients. And you guys are doing nanonife. That's the, your, your, your main ablation source. When you say nanonife, I mean, is it heat? What are you doing with it? What type of, is it energy or, I mean, frequency? What, what is a nanonife? Nanonife is also known as irreversible electroporation or IRE. And that's essentially using uh, electric current to simplify it, to break up the membranes of cells and destroy them in such manner. 
the interesting thing about this technology is that it preserves the connective tissues and it minimizes destruction of the nerves. So for example, you know, not to pull away from prostate cancer, but many centers and surgical oncologists are using it in treatment of pancreatic cancer in those tumors that are wrapped around the aorta or inferior vena cava around very important structures. And they're able to literally ablate on top of these vessels very safely and cause no damage because it doesn't destroy the connective tissue and the skeleton of these structures. And so that idea is also hopefully going to translate into what we're doing here. Uh, and there's multiple studies to show that the safety of that, but it is a non-thermal energy. Basically it doesn't non-thermal. Non-thermal. Okay. And does it have like a radius of effect on the prostate? When you decide that you're going to go for ablation with a patient, does the size of the prostate matter? No. Or, or the size of the lesion on the MRI, that's how you guys do it through the MRI correlated, correlated with a biopsy. I think that, uh, I'm going to, you know, Dr. Patel can jump in here anytime, but the size of the prostate does not matter. And the size of the lesion does not matter with this approach. You can, I mean, if you wanted to take out the whole prostate, you could, but what you're really treating with this technology is most likely quadrants of a prostate gland. So these probes that we use, they have different lengths that you can adjust anywhere from 1.5 centimeters to two to three centimeters at a time. And they have a certain length beyond the tip and the base, five millimeters in each direction that you can cover. And so by placing these probes carefully within prostate gland, you know, two, three, four probes, whatever, you can outline an area of the prostate and treat as big as you want or as small as you want. So you can really adjust according to your lesion size and a location. This is how you're able to spare nerves and important structures. So I'll, I'll just add in into that, that comment for nano knife, the electricity is going through the currents are going through two probes at a time. So these are needle probes that are uh, 17 gauge needles, and they're going strategically placing them in the prostate through a transperineal approach, you know, using a brachy grid and ultrasound guidance and the geometry of the probes and the number of probes that we use helps to dictate how the ablation zone is going to play out. So if you use two probes, your ablation zone is almost like a cylindrical pill with you know rounded ends. If you use three probes, it's more of a triangular shaped, a rounded triangular shaped zone. And if you use four probes, d depending on how you're placing it, you're getting a more rounded cube-like ablation zone in 3D. So uh, depending on your lesion size and how the lesion is within the prostate, you can adjust how many probes you're going to use to get an adequate ablation zone. And right now, I have seen the, the, the templates that the radiation oncologists do for a focal ablation. Is there those images or is just right now, it's just like a mental image that you create in your head and then you go by what you see on the MRI, how's your approach to when the patient already said, okay, let's do an ablation. How is that approach to decide how many treatments you're going to do? So for focal ablation of prostate cancer using NanoKnife, we are confirming with MRI that there's a focal lesion. 
we do systematic biopsies as well as targeted biopsies of the lesion. Many folks are using MRI fusion guided biopsies. In our practice since the start have been doing more of a cognitive approach. So we have high quality ultrasound. Many times we're able to see the lesion on the ultrasound that we're biopsying. So when we do our transperineal biopsies, we're approaching it, we're, we're able to see these lesions on the ultrasound and target them directly without using a fusion approach. So when it comes down to treatment of these lesions, it's the same concept. We have a high quality ultrasound and we're targeting these areas that we can see on ultrasound, as well as using a slightly wider approach. So we're, we're not doing a microfocus around the tumor. We're probably taking about a, a five millimeter margin when we're ablating these tumors. And I think, Ranko, you mentioned this before. Uh, you took about a three plus four and, and four plus three, two or three positive biopsies, same area or one positive biopsy. Would that be the ideal candidate? I mean, or, or, or who's the ideal candidate right now? Somebody that is willing to go this uh, versus a surgery? How do you go deciding, I mean, surgery versus treatment like this? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that Clearly, some of the data that was presented by the groups in Europe and Australia, there were certain series that showed recurrence in, in up to 30% of patients. And you have to be, I think, careful we offer it to. Obviously, we are not going to be offering this to patients who are at least an eight or higher because of the risk of metastatic disease and et cetera. I think that Dr. Patel and myself have sort of agreed to offer it to any man age-wise who may have minimal three plus four disease. And I think for those men who have four plus three disease, we would offer it in a setting of an older patient population, uh, maybe who are, who have other comorbidities and who are not great candidates for surgery and who may not want to undergo radiation either. So I think four plus three is perfectly fine. I just am not comfortable yet at this time offering to my 50-year-old guy, for example. And this is why I think it's going to be important that we have long-term follow-up on this. I think we have short and intermediate-term follow-ups with these studies, but something on a longer-term basis may convince me otherwise. But for now, I think 3 plus 4, anyone, and uh, 4 plus 3 in the older guys with other comorbidities. And Dr. Patel can you know, answer this as well, but this is sort of our stand for now. And, and three plus four, uh, only one, one, one lobe, two lobes, does it matter? Yeah, I think that uh, we want this disease to be on one side of the prostate. So essentially, you know, we feel that we can get hemiablation done if we had to. Once you have disease, you know, both sides of the prostate, I don't think we would offer this at this time. So we are interested in offering to those men who have uh, disease mostly, you know, on the left or right side of the prostate gland. And when you talk about the, the ablation, focal ablation, I mean, what are the pros and cons that you talk to the patient about? I mean, definitely recurrence is, is a con, but what else do you talk about with the patient? Yeah, I think the pros of ablation are that, and the pros of any ablation are you're trying to minimize the side effects, you know, and maintain quality of life in patients while still treating the cancer. And so with the different types of ablation therapies that I've done, you know, one of them specifically is cryoablation. And there's a lot of studies on focal cryoablation of the prostate. But cryoablation, as you know, 
is a thermal-based therapy. You're, you're freezing the prostate and you're freezing whatever zone is within that ice ball and everything is destroyed. It's dropping a little bomb in that region of the prostate. So your connective tissue, your blood vessels, your nerves, some of the surrounding area around that ice ball is, is there's thermal damage created. One of the pros that we're seeing with NanoKnife and with other athermal approaches that may emerge is that you're not damaging the connective tissue, the collagen structure, the nerves and the blood vessels that are around surrounding the prostate as well as within the prostate. So your scar tissue formation, your side effects of erectile dysfunction are, are going to be a, a lot lower. In addition, you're not significantly causing damage to the urethra as well. One of the concerns about cryoablation is we have to use a urethral warming catheter and we do have to maintain a certain distance away from the urethra to not cause sloughing or even you know strictures within the prostate or within the membranous urethra. In our early experience with NanoKnife, we have not seen that. We can be close to the urethra. You'll have a zone of urethra that's even treated with the current, but it's not causing damage to those to that endothelial tissue. And so there may be some swelling, but not damage. And I think that's a really important aspect when you're thinking about ablative therapies and certainly the pros of NanoKnife is that you're not going to have significant scarring and scar tissue that's developing in these patients. Ranko mentioned that you were doing salvage at cryo for, for some patients. Were you were doing before uh, primary treatment for, for, I mean, primary first therapy? I've been doing cryosurgery uh, really since the days at Cleveland Clinic. And, and that's where, you know, there was a gentleman, Jay Stephen Jones, doing it out there. And so I trained under him and he was doing a lot of primary therapies as well as salvage. And so my practice primarily has turned into a salvage cryoablation. So patients who are failing radiation, brachytherapy or, or external beam, um, if they have recurrences, we are, are treating them with either focal cryoablation based on MRI and biopsy or whole gland cryoablation. I have also treated primary tumors with cryoablation, but mostly my practice is salvage. And more or less same indication that you had for cryo, you're using it for the, for the nano knife? So currently I, I haven't done, uh, we haven't done any salvage therapies using the nano knife. It's mostly for primary tumors that have been untreated. But for primary, I mean, compared to the episode to the experience that you had before for, with cryo for primary treatment, what is the difference in terms of outcomes that you're seeing in terms of, of, of the, of how the patient feels erectile uh, wise? Yeah. So our, our early experience, uh, you know, one of the biggest benefits is that with cryosurgery, I don't know if you recall, at one point, urologists were placing suprapubic tubes uh, at the time of cryosurgery because of the risk of retention afterwards. In my practice, I, I leave a catheter, a urethral catheter in for seven days for cryo. For NanoKnife, uh, we're leaving catheters for three days. So I think there's significantly less swelling, less risk of urinary retention after the procedure. The perioperative time, the time operative time is actually lower for uh, nanoknife than cryoablation. Typically for any cryoablation, whether it's whole gland or partial or ablation, uh, a focal ablation, it takes about an hour and a half, 90 minutes of time, sometimes up to two hours. Uh, with nanoknife, uh, we're seeing um, much faster operative times, uh, anywhere from 45 minutes to, to an hour. So treatment time is a lot quicker. We have 
been doing our, our nano knife cases in a freestanding outpatient surgery center. So these cases are outpatient. The patients do require paralysis for nano knife. They don't require that necessarily for cryoablation. But I think the biggest benefit is that less swelling in the prostate, lower risk of retention after the procedure. And you, you guys both do uh, a lot of radical prostatectomies, robotic. Let's say the same patient, let's say 50-year-old patient, two cores, same side of triple four. Will you push that patient to do a focal ablation? Or how do you go, or you just put everything up front and then let the patient decide? If they tell you, hey, if it's your father, what will you do? Or, or, or if it's you, what do you do? What do you do answer to that patient? So current, you know, when we talk about these therapies, and I think that's a great question for all of us that are sort of getting into these emerging therapies, you know, first and foremost, we do tell patients that this is not standard of care yet. And so we tell them that it's, it's still, we're still studying it. And there's, you know, we have a clinical trial that we're actually um, about to start. And so we're going to be enrolling patients into that clinical trial. First and foremost, that's what we say, that this is something that's emerging. It's not standard of care and we describe it. But I think, you know, one of the other benefits, and we we didn't get into this, of NanoKnife is that, or at least what I'm seeing and, and from the studies out of, out of Australia and Europe is that because of the lack of thermal damage, there's no thermal damage to the tissues. If a patient has an, uh, you know, a rare infield or, or an out of field recurrence, so an area that wasn't treated that recurs with cancer, those patients can still undergo all of the therapies as if they were starting over. So they are still candidates for surgery for radical prostatectomy, they're still candidates for radiation therapy. And if it's the untreated area, they can still be candidates for ablation of that area too. So I think that makes something like NanoKnife more appealing. And have you guys done prostatectomies after ablation, after NanoKnife ablation? No, you know, we have not done prostatectomies after NanoKnife. Uh, we have spoken to people who have and they don't uh, find them uh, more difficult than routine prostatectomy. So that's another huge plus in my, in my eyes is that when I talk to patients about this, and I, I do sound very excited, I must say, because uh, I am excited about this focal technology. I do tell them that it's kind of like, you know, idiot proof. You know, if it persists six months from now and you know, the disease is still there. We do a biopsy. And if you choose to proceed with prostatectomy and radiation, we can still do it, which is great. And really with minimal to no risk, you know, as, as if they never had this done. So I think that's another huge attraction why we picked up this particular technology to use in our group. So let's talk about the, the setup. So, okay, so, so you guys decide or the patient decides to go on an ablation. Uh, you mentioned the patient is going to be lithotomy, it's going to be a perineal approach. You give them any specific antibiotic? Just general prophylaxis antibiotic. So ANSEF typically is, is what we give. That's what you usually do for uh, biopsies also? Or you do something different for biopsy? Well, in the past for biopsies, we were using more or less Bactrone, rarely Cipro or, or some type of IM ceftriaxone or, or, you know, combination of an IM tobramycin or gentamicin plus an oral. Um, with our transperineals, we're actually reducing the antibiotic. We're still using Keflex, the more skin antibiotic, but I think uh, in general, centers who have done a lot of these are, are actually stopping 
antibiotics now with, with the prostate biopsies that are done transperineal. So uh, you mentioned about uh, how you decide how many probes and, and the depth or, or the size of the lesion. So let's say if the patient has same low but different areas, uh, how you how will you treat those lesions? So, you know, let me just paint a picture of a patient who may have Gleason 6 on the left side, Gleason 3 plus 4 on the right side, but you have it at the apex and the mid gland or apex and the base. The approach that we would take in this case is that we would leave the left side alone with the Gleason 6 and that would be our accurate surveillance option or moving forward, that's how we would follow that. For the right side where you have the apex and the base, we have the option of setting our needles at the base of the prostate, treating that area and then pulling the needles back and then treating the apex area. Or you can also just treat almost like a hemiablation by widening the exposure of those needles. It all depends how big your prostate is. If your prostate is only, you know, three or four centimeters long, then you may be able to get those areas in one sitting. If your prostate is five or six centimeters long, it's bigger gland, then you may want to consider this pullback approach so you, you can um, treat it that way. I just want to mention the study, the, the preserve study that we're involved with. So these patients are then followed basically by having uh, PSAs every three months for the 12 months. They would have a repeat MRI at three to six months and at 12 months. And at 12 months, we would repeat a biopsy and we would be looking for recurrent within the treated area or infield. That's the primary goal of the study. Now you may pull the trigger and do a biopsy or MRI quicker or faster or sooner if your PSA kinetics don't fit what you think is appropriate, if they're changing, if there's issues going on, you can do it sooner. But this is kind of the approach that we have been doing so far in our group and as well in this uh, study protocol that we're going to embark upon. Hopefully this answers this question. Definitely, definitely. And for patients that have BPH or, or symptomatic symptoms, lower urinary tract symptoms, do you guys do anything before ablation or? In terms of surgery, what, what do you guys do for, for, for those patients that have urinary symptoms and prostate cancer? You know, just to add to this, I have added steroids to my patients. I've stolen this concept from the Urolift people and brachytherapy people. And I think Dr. Patel and I, for patients who have significant prostate issues, we would give them a, a dose a pack of steroids. It's, it's a uh, Salimedrol, you know, five, six day course immediately after surgery to be taken to minimize the swelling and the edema that this, uh, causes. But I think that the way we would treat with these, deal with these patients, just like with any other patients with, who has radiation, for example, you know, we have tons of those patients in those cases, I will, uh, wait, you know, nine, six to nine months until radiation is done and offer them a TERP. People are now doing uh, Eurolifts as well in a lot of those patients. So I don't think this is going to be any different than what we have been done routinely for the other you know, population. And so let's talk about the procedure per se. You mentioned it goes from one probe to the other, and that's the area of electrocautery, I guess, or, 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 or damage to the prostate from one probe to the other. Am I right by saying that? Yeah, so you're placing your probes in a strategic sort of geometric position. So uh, you're essentially lining up your probes to surround 
the lesion that you're treating, and the probes have to remain parallel to each other. So that's really important that they're equally spaced and and parallel from the tip of the probe to the back of the probe. And so ultrasound guidance helps you with that. And that's in contrast to other ablation that essentially the probe generates something around the probe versus this one that the probes essentially, you place them at the limit of the lesion, right? Yes, actually, that's a great point, Jose. So, you know, in cryosurgery, you're essentially placing your probes directly into the tumor and then you're building an ice ball around that. Or, you know, you might put a couple of probes and then the ice balls will connect to ablate the entire larger tumor for like a hemiablation. Here, you're more or less surrounding your lesion with these electrodes, these electrode probes. And then the way the technology works, the electricity is going to cycle from one probe to the other and then alternate to the next probe and then the third probe. And then each of the probes will have currents going through them. And so there's a whole cycle. And the more probes you have, the more cycle events are going to occur between each of the probe sequences. There'll be more sequences. And as the electricity is going through from probe to probe, that's what's creating the ablation, irreversible electroporation, and causing the cell death in that zone. And how you know when it's done? I mean, do you go by, by the ultrasound? Do you, the machine tells you to stop? How does it work? Essentially, the machine cycles through each of the probes at a, at a sort of defined limit, and, the, and then it stops. So you'll have a sequence of treatments, and then it's done. During that time, you're monitoring your wattage. So, you, you know, electroporation is a thermal current, but you're monitoring your wattage because at a certain level of energy, it can become thermal. So the, you do monitor that uh, energy that you're sending to make sure that you're, you're in that athermal zone. And that's all done through the probes. And I, I forgot to ask you, in terms of the, of the size of the leech, I mean, do you factor in the, what you got from the biopsy, or the, the, the percentage of the biopsy that was positive? Does that play into this or, or really you go just by, by imaging? We mostly go just by imaging. I think your percentage involvement, that's what you're asking, percentage involvement of the core. You know, if you're targeting these lesions, you know, targeting directly into that lesion, you're going to have a higher percentage of core involvement because you've targeted that lesion as opposed to when you were doing random biopsies, you know, sextant biopsies. So I think we, we tend to have on our targeted biopsies, we tend to have a higher percentage regardless because we've, we've targeted that area. So we go mostly based on the imaging and the location of the positive biopsies. I just want to add, I know it's hard to conceptualize this, but, you know, focal ablation is not like you're taking, you know, five millimeters and treating five by five millimeters. This really electric field effect that's being caused. I mean, you're really, in my opinion, treating probably quarter of a gland, you know, at each, each one of those. So what I like about it is that, yeah, you know where this lesion is located, but you don't have to just precisely by millimeters be right on it or around it. In essence, this is going to, you know, kind of ablate that entire area of the prostate. And, and I think that's why even this cognitive approach that we're talking about makes sense because you're going to ablate a certain wide area of the, of, of the gland. And Dr. Patel wants to say something, I think. I think that's a great point in that because the technology 
has less side effects and less, ther- you know, no thermal damage and less side effects. Um, it doesn't cause nerve damage. You can go wider without risking or compromising side effects and, and morbidity to the patient. So, you know, one of the things I, I didn't mention, which is really important, is that in cryosurgery, you can't make that ice ball as big as you want because you're going to risk injuring the rectum and other structures like the sidewall, the muscle and the pelvic floor. With NanoKnife, you can get right up to the edge of the prostate and treat that zone even slightly outside of it without significantly injuring or damaging the nerves or the neurovascular bundle. And I think to Ronco's point, that's an advantage. Yeah, that, definitely. And I guess that that's the difference that, that NanoKnife brings to, to the table. Uh, we're used to RFA, we're used to, to cryo, things that, that, that cause ablation outside the probe and you really cannot measure how much damage you're doing. Uh, and and, and th- in contrast to this, that you can say, I went from this point to this point and everything in the middle is going to be targeted. And I have to tell you, Jose, just you know, anecdotally, before we started with this therapy, we had a surgeon, a surgical oncologist in our, in our hospital system here who was using NanoKnife on his pancreas treatments. And so we talked to him before we actually approached and started doing this in our patients. And the way they use it is they put those probes directly right on the SMA, you know, around the SMA where the pancreas and the tumor might be enveloped, you know, around the SMA and they ablate that area. And then they go in and surgically remove it while preserving the SMA. And they're able to you know, remove the tumor. Now, the idea in those cases is that you can't cut into the SMA or damage the SMA. And so what you're expecting with the nanonife is that any tumor cells left in that region have now been killed, and then they immediately go in and resect the pancreas. And whatever tissue they may have left on the SMA or the aorta, that was treated with the nanonife and is essentially going to be dead cells. And they found very favorable responses. Yeah, yeah, I remember residency, those patients, if the SMA was involved, that was it for those patients. I mean, n- now definitely they're doing more stuff, but back in the day, that's what that's how it was. So let me ask you this. So after the treatment, you mentioned the, the three days fully. Do you have to do a cystoscopy afterwards or anything? No, that has not been our uh, standard practice at all. I know, you know, I think that that cystoscopy concept came probably from brachytherapy seeds that people would sometimes drop in the bladder, but there's no such need for uh, this treatment. And have you had patients that after three days, you, you, they still have retention? No, I have not seen that yet. We have followed our patients, obviously, very closely with IPSS scores, et cetera. And uh, they may have some minor symptoms the week after the fully comes out. And I mean very minor. Some men have experienced uh, hematospermia for up to a month. And I would say it's very uh, comparable to the prostate biopsy side effects. I mean, that's really what you're seeing, and they're extremely happy. Good. No, and, and it's good that you mentioned, I think it was Amit that mentions that, that at least that 55-year-old, 550-year-old with good erections, you're, you're giving them recourse in 10, 15 years, then, I mean, who cares? I mean, so at that time, you can do something else, but, but at least you gave him more time no sexual side effects for, for longer. So you have been following those patients for, for a couple of years now? No, you know, we just started about a year ago. So our experience so far has been uh, very, very short term. We're actually starting to do some of the first re-biopsies now at this point. 
looking for the, that infield recurrence and see how things are going. So, you know, this is why in this, you know, in our hands, in this country, this data is pretty new, if you will. But, you know, a lot of our stuff that we have analyzed comes from Europe and Australia. And those guys have been doing it for 10 years with some pretty uh, impressive results. Yeah, I mean, yeah, d definitely that's, that's, I guess that's what we're heading or, or that's how the, the Europe is heading, trying to do preserve organ. I mean, we have done it for, for kidneys, for, for other organs. Why not the prostate? I mean, uh, definitely, I think that's, that's what's coming ahead. It might be nano knife, might be something else. Who knows what's going to happen, but it's, it's, I mean, it's exciting, I guess, uh, that, that we did this field and it's evolving. I just want to say, I think, you know, Ronco put it best when he said that if we can take a, a patient that may have a clinically significant cancer and treat that lesion and make it a clinically insignificant cancer where we're just following them on, like we do with our active surveillance patients and we bring them down into a low risk category, I think that's really what, one of the sort of benefits of focal ablation is, is we're, we're reducing their risk. And if we have a therapy that has high efficacy, and a therapy that has low treatment side effects. And then thirdly, a treatment that allows you to have additional treatments, doesn't take anything off the table. That's really the ideal focal ablation treatment. And do you guys see this being stretched to, to, to higher grade cancers, like group, group three, group four, maybe? I think uh, if it does, it's going to have to be studied. You know, it'll have to be done under protocol and certainly maybe some extreme cases, but I think it, it should be studied. But do you think it's a matter of technology? It's just the disease that is going to be throughout the prostate, even though uh, you have a few biopsies that most likely is already throughout the entire prostate. I think that uh, one of the issues with high-risk disease is, uh, you know, in certain cases, you already have up to 30% chance that your, you know, disease is beyond prostate gland, whether it's lymph nodes or SVs or whatever. And um, I don't think that those guys are cured by focal ablation of the gland only. I think in uh, a lot of those patients, you need very aggressive approach that's, uh, you know, prostatectomy with lymphodissection follow followed up by salvage or adjuvant external beam radiation therapy. And you're doing everything to stop this disease and it's tracked while it's in pelvis, local regional disease. So... Maybe this will play a role uh, if you have some kind of a combination of therapies that would treat localized, locally advanced disease. But for right now, I think our, our focus is really just in these patients who clearly have just, you know, stage, you know, clinical stage two or less, PSA less than 15, intermediate risk of consisting of three plus four or four plus three. And the other criteria is that if they have a PSA above 15, then the PSA density should be less than 0.15. These are just some of the criteria from the study that we're using to include patients. So you're including patients more than 10, PSA more than 10 then? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And that's re regardless of the, I mean, if it's a uh, 75, I mean, regardless of the age. Yes. I think that uh, we know what PSA means. I mean, PSA <laughs> is a marker that we all use, but it's not a perfect marker as you know. And so I think with this advent of MRI uh, and, and, and us knowing what the gland looks like now, uh, much more accurate, you know, measurements of the gland size, you know, I, I think that we have a better understanding in that patient population with elevated PSA, what we're dealing with. And so I think it's, uh, 
fine if you have a guy who has 86 gram prostate that has PSA of 10 or 12, his PSA density will be appropriate. And I think in that case, it won't make a difference whether that PSA is that high or not. And how long do you think it's going to take for the AUA to add this to the, to the guidelines? I mean, as, as a first line therapy, five years, less? So first and foremost, this is, uh, I just want to mention this, this technology is approved for, so it's out there. You can use it. It doesn't have the specification for prostate cancer yet. That's what we're trying to do with the FDA, uh, with our, uh, angiodynamics partners. And I think once we get this approved and it has indication for prostate cancer and people, uh, engage in using it more and, and we have a little bit more data these outcomes, I think I'm hoping that it gets incorporated sooner rather than later, because it is a very sound option in my opinion. And, and definitely, I mean, I, I'm not doing radical prostatectomy. I, I see a lot of prostate cancer and then I just send it to the people if they want radiation or they want uh, a surgery, but people are looking for something like this. And sadly, most patients, I always say most patients will be candidate for this because they're group two. One side of the prostate, minimal uh, disease, and then you're, you're, you're submitting them to something more and more drastical. Even now with robotics, it's a prettier surgery, but still the outcomes more or less the same. Yeah, I, I agree. I, 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 you said sadly. I don't know if you said sadly because you're thinking that we're going to put our surgeons out of business. But, you know, Ronco and I do a lot of prostate cancer surgery. But I think, you know, for us as urologists, you know, a majority of us are really looking to find the best option for our patients. And, and really, because we might be those patients at some point. And so I think it'll never eliminate surgery fully because I think there are going to be candidates for surgery that are higher risk. But I think uh, this is something that is up and coming and uh, we're very excited about it. Good. So thanks for being here with us at Back Table. I hope in a couple of years or in one year, one, two years, we'll talk again about this. About, about your results and how, how your experience and the follow-up on those patients. And hopefully, that will be, it will be good. We would love to come back, Jose. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.